Hello and welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. Thank you for joining me. First up, you're forgiven if you didn't do the homework for this episode. Uh, Maybe the dog ate your internet. Uh, In any case, uh, we'll take a quick look at the articles mentioned, uh, then take a look at abortion in Canada, and more specifically, the response of the United Church of Canada. Again, thank you for joining me. So far, we've traveled across the ancient Near East from the garden to the cross. We met some important historical figures, including Hippocrates and a couple of popes. We've also reviewed some ethical guidelines. Uh, Remember that handy wallet-sized card? Um, And these guidelines may serve us well into the future. Uh, So what are they? Well, one, do no harm. Pursue the common good. Treat others as you wish to be treated. And develop a moral character. Once again, we keep these principles in mind as we move into some beginning-of-life issues. First, I want to look at the short articles I mentioned last time, uh, Power in the Blood by Anne Bachma, uh, and the companion article, uh, Period Poverty is a Serious Issue in Canada by Angela Mombourquette. Uh, My overall goal was to introduce you to a range of critical issues around menstruation. And so, since uh, we can't have a proper conversation over the radio, let me share some of the ethical and bioethical issues in the article I identified. One, the nature of aging and women's identity, breaking the menstrual taboo, access to free sanitary products, the use of dangerous chemicals in pads and other products, rebuilding a sisterhood of mutual support, uh, the legacy of archaic sex education, uh, lingering religious oppression, recapturing uh, spirituality of menstruation, and embracing period pride. It's quite a list, and there seems to be some common threads, Or rather, what would you say are the common threads in these nine or more issues highlighted in the articles? Um, Take a moment, if you wish. At the heart of these issues is the basic inequality that lives in each of these concerns. What about the men? Would we put up with the stigma, cost, danger, or direct oppression that comes with a normal biological cycle? Well, not likely. And so before we wander into the abortion debate, I want to highlight an event that shone a bright light on this issue of gender inequality vis-a-vis bioethics. This is a transcript of an exchange between then-Judge Brett Kavanaugh and then-Senator Kamala Harris of California. It comes uh, from the San Francisco Chronicle, who put together the narrative. Uh, Senator Harris Can you think of any laws that give the government the power to make decisions about the male body? Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, I'm happy to answer a more specific question, but... And he trailed off. Male versus female, uh, Harris prodded him. Medical procedures, he asked. That the government has the power to make a decision about a man's body, she asked. Well, I thought you were asking about medical procedures that are unique to men, said Kavanaugh. I'll repeat the question, Harris said with a smile, speaking slowly and deliberately. Can you think of any laws that give the government power to make decisions about the male body? 
I'm not aware. I'm, I'm not thinking of any right now, Senator, he replied, stammering a bit. Was the future vice president making a valid point or was it a stunt? You can discuss if you wish, or you can ponder the bigger question. Can you think of any laws that give the government power to make decisions about the male body? Take a moment if you wish. It feels like the time we should repatriate the conversation and begin our look at the history of abortion law in Canada, or at the very least, uh, within the British Empire, the source of our first laws regulating the termination of pregnancy. We begin then in Britain in 1803, where the first act criminalizing abortion is passed. It became a capital offense to abort a fetus after the quickening, with lesser penalties in the period before the fetus became quick. So what is quick? The quickening is the moment, usually between 16 weeks and 20 weeks, that the baby moves. Interestingly, this legislation lined up with the Roman Catholic position at the time. Until the quickening, no ensoulment took place. In other words, the fetus had no soul for the first four months or so until the quickening indicated a soul becoming present. This position stood until 1869 when the Roman Catholic Church banned abortion altogether, a position that still stands. Perhaps no coincidence, the first abortion law after Confederation in Canada was passed in 1869. It included a complete ban on abortion and recommended life in prison for procuring the procedure. Uh, This law would stand for a century, but it didn't stop the practice of abortion. As Dr. Morton Shulman, former chief coroner of Ontario, wrote in his autobiography, abortions were frequent in the 1960s with the safety of the procedure determined primarily by class. There were reliable doctors for the wealthy who performed abortions for cash, and Shulman estimated that a single doctor might perform up to 30 abortions a week. Across town, among the poor, were nurse abortionists using the common method of pumping Lysol into a woman's womb and the life-threatening infections that often followed. Uh, Shulman wrote, By the time I became chief coroner, I had the unpleasant experience of seeing the bodies of some dozens of young women who had died as a result of these amateur abortions. Dr. Shulman's response was to instruct coroners across Ontario to hold an inquest after every death related to abortion. This raised the profile of the issue, particularly uh, with cases such as the death of 34-year-old Lottie Clark, a mother of three, who died from infection following an abortion. Beginning in 1965, the Pearson government pledged to study the issue. Pierre Trudeau, then Minister of Justice, introduced legislation to amend the criminal code with regard to abortion, contraception, and homosexuality. He also made one of his two most famous remarks, uh, the state has no business in the bedrooms of the nation. Uh, The second, of course, is just watch me in response to the Quebec crisis. What do you think of Mr. Trudeau's uh, bedrooms in the nation remark now some 55 years later? Take a moment if you wish. The act passed in 1969, setting out the conditions under which a woman might obtain an abortion. Uh, 
It relied on therapeutic abortion committees based in hospitals made up of three physicians who did not perform the procedure. Their task was to certify by a simple majority that the continuation of the pregnancy would or would be likely to endanger the life or health of the female. Health in this context was not defined, meaning that some might extend this to mental health or psychological well-being. In the opinion of one lawyer for the Crown, uh, instead of defining the circumstances in which an abortion was permissible, Parliament stated that abortion was legal if the Therapeutic Abortion Committee said it was legal. But immediately, problems developed. Some hospitals chose not to set up a therapeutic abortion committee, while others set up committees that denied all requests. Committees often took took weeks to render a decision, adding to the stress of the situation. Committees were not required to meet with the woman, and there was no right to appeal once the decision was made. There tended to be limited access to abortion outside of larger cities, with uh, one province, Prince Edward Island, uh, simply uh, not providing the procedure after 1982. Just as an aside, uh, during the in-person version of this podcast, uh, way back in 2018, uh, one of my uh, congregants, Dr. Jim, shared his experience as a young doc uh, serving on one of these committees. In his case, the committee said an automatic yes to every request, trusting the doctor-patient dynamic. They never lost sight of the fact that other committees in other settings were taking the opposite approach. Let's shift now to look at the United Church of Canada. Our primary policy statement was passed at the 28th General Council in 1980. Overall, our policy stance is pro-choice, but there is an effort to find a bit of middle ground. Uh, This is from the preamble of the motion. As Christians, we wish to affirm the sanctity of human life, born or unborn, that life is much more than physical existence. We also affirm that the taking of human life is evil. Our concern must not be limited to a concern for the unborn, but also include a concern for the quality of life as a whole. I think you can sense the back and forth in the few words that I've shared. The sanctity of human life, but there is more than physical existence. Taking a life is evil, but concern for life is more than the unborn, its life as a whole. It it reads like the work of two committees edited together. And as we scan the range and depth of the concerns listed, it may well represent the work of more more than one committee. Following the preamble, the, the topics abound. There must be a massive contraception program, it insisted, uh, to ensure that contraception become the only means of birth control, uh, meaning not abortion. Family planning must be widely taught, uh, and public funding should be made available to pay for it. And there should be a family planning clinic in every hospital and public health unit. And then the heart of the policy. We affirm the inherent value of human life, both as immature in the fetus and as expressed in the life of the mother and related persons. The fetus is a unique, though immature, form of human life and as such has inherent value. 
Christians should witness to the value to that value by stressing that abortion is always a moral issue and can be only accepted as the lesser of two evils and should be the most responsible alternative available in each particular situation. Therefore, abortion is acceptable only in certain medical, social, and economic situations. End quote. Having established this position, the document goes further on to suggest abortion be considered a personal matter between a woman and her doctor, that the government decriminalize abortion, except in cases where unqualified people offer abortion services, and a greater access to counseling services be provided for women facing unwanted pregnancy. So what do you think of the United Church's position on abortion? Take, take a moment, if you wish. The fight to advance the United Church position had no greater ally than Dr. Henry Morgenthaler, a Polish-born physician, a concentration camp survivor, abortion access pioneer, and frequent litigant. From the late 1960s to the late 80s, Morgenthaler set up clinics, trained colleagues, and defied the law. First, his clinics existed outside of hospitals and did not have therapeutic abortion committees. When he tried to set up his clinics as a kind of medical trial, which the government, with government sanction, both the federal and Quebec government refused. Instead, they sent the police. Beginning in 1973, he was tried and acquitted uh, three times, and the matter was referred to the Quebec Court of Appeal. In a first in Canada, the appeal court overturned his acquittal and sentenced him to 18 months in jail. It took a change uh, in government in Quebec, the Parti Québécois was uh, elected in 1976, and an amendment to the Criminal Code of Canada disallowing an appeal court to convict someone after an acquittal. He would uh, go on to open clinics in Toronto and Winnipeg, still in defiance of the law, and face further trials. When his case finally made it to the Supreme Court of Canada in 1988, the court threw out the act concerning abortion. And to date, no further criminal law related to abortion has been enacted. Now that we've exhausted the abortion debate, it might make sense to look at that other beginning-of-life topic, uh, prenatal health and the options available for learning about the fetus in utero. The most common test is called an amniocentesis, uh, where amniotic fluid is drawn from the sac that surrounds the fetus. From this test, a number of things can be identified, uh, including gender, uh, genetic conditions such as Down's syndrome can be detected, along with neural tube defects such as spina bifida. The test is usually done between uh, 14 and 16 weeks and carries some risk of miscarriage. In recent years, researchers have developed a new approach to prenatal testing, uh, generally known as non-invasive prenatal testing, NIPT, uh, this test, uh, marketed under the name Harmony, looks at fetal DNA circulating in the mother's blood. The test is still looking for anomalies like Down syndrome, but does it without the use of a needle injected into the mother's womb. It's also used uh, after only 10 weeks. 
This allows a woman to choose to terminate the pregnancy in the first trimester, the period when it's easier to obtain an abortion in Canada. The primary moral issue with both these tests is the possibility of sex selection and abortion. So, should a woman's right to choose extend to choosing the gender of her child uh, through abortion? And do any of the four ethical principles that we've outlined uh, help in this case? Hmm. Take a moment if you wish. Now, I'm going to draw this episode to a close, uh, slowly. But before I do, I want to appear timely and topical and point you to a discussion that's happening uh, this week in America. The Alabama Supreme Court made a rather controversial ruling this week regarding frozen embryos. Uh, First, I'll give you a a thumbnail sketch from uh, the AP's reporting. They wrote, uh, the Alabama Supreme Court has ruled that frozen embryos can be considered children under state law. A decision, critics uh, said, could have sweeping implications for fertility treatment in the state. The decision was issued in a pair of wrongful death cases brought by three couples who had frozen embryos destroyed in an accident at a fertility clinic. Justices, citing anti-abortion language in the Alabama Constitution, ruled that an 1872 state law allowing parents to sue over the death of a minor child applies to all unborn children, regardless of their location. Unborn children are children, uh, it goes on to say, without exception, based on developmental stage, physical location, or any other ancillary characteristics. This is written by Justice J. Mitchell, uh, who wrote it in the uh, majority ruling uh, by the all-Republican Supreme Court. So what are we talking about? Well, let's ask the experts again for a definition of frozen embryos um, in the context of IVF. According to Johns Hopkins, uh, the procedure involves removing eggs from the ovaries, fertilizing them to create embryos, letting them grow for several days, and then freezing them. So what's the purpose of freezing them? Johns Hopkins goes on to explain that embryos uh, may be frozen for the purposes of future family building, or if pre-implantation genetic testing uh, creates a delay in the procedure, best to freeze them then, it may also be used to preserve future fertility if, for example, a woman is undergoing uh, cancer treatment that may compromise her fertility. So that's the the context of the discussion, and it brings us back to the key question. Are frozen embryos children? I encourage you to use your key ethical principles card and perhaps a little common sense and decide for yourself. Next time, we're going to shift to later life and some ethical questions around aging. Uh, I'm certainly feeling it, so it should be a good topic. Uh, After all, uh, every day we're getting a day older. And on that happy note, I'll say thank you and goodbye for now.